Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, the scientists trying out VR goggles on mice. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter at Newstalk Science, or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. We get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free in the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. First up, as always, time to look back at some of the more interesting stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Leanne Shanley from Trinity College Dublin. You're both very welcome. Leanne, our first story um, seems to be uh, good advances in uh, the condition of asthma. Yes, so there was a major breakthrough this week for sufferers of severe asthma that are currently prescribed a biologic therapy, and we'll get onto that in one minute, as well as their steroid inhaler, which we're all familiar with. So all of us are familiar with asthma in one form or another, whether directly or indirectly, and we know that um, the common form of treatment for this is an inhaler. So what are these inhalers? Well, you can have your relievers or you can have your preventers, and they do what they say on the tin or on the plastic casing, as it may be. (laughs) The reliever uh, relieves any um, exacerbations of asthma or severe symptoms, and the preventers are taken daily by asthma sufferers. So what is in these preventers? Usually it's a steroid and this keeps the inflammation at bay and is generally pretty good to manage asthma symptoms. But this doesn't work in all cases. So about 3-5% to of asthmatics um, have what's known as severe asthma in which they aren't responsive to steroid treatment. And usually the clinician will up the dosage from low to medium to high. And if they aren't responsive to high dose steroids, they are then prescribed a biologic therapeutic. Sorry, um, just to to stop you for a second. The the asthma um, inhalers that they take are are steroids that yeah. People take some. Some people take every single day. Every single day, yeah. A low dose. And low that cannot be good for you, can you? It's not good. No, you're correct. There are a lot of adverse effects associated with long-term steroid use, and these include uh, osteoporosis in severe cases, thinning of the skin, mood disorders. So, no, it's not good. So that's kind of prompted uh, the basis of this study. So these guys decided to investigate whether people receiving biologic therapeutics as well as a high dose steroid could effectively minimize their use of steroid if the biologic therapies were proven to work. So right. what yeah. So what is a biologic therapy? Well, it's a product that's derived. I'll be taking my questions, although that wasn't going to be my question. <laughs> what well, wasn't? Well, I'll just set the scene. Um, it's a therapy that's derived from a living organism. And in the case of this particular study, they were looking at benrolizumab. So this is a particular therapeutic targeted towards a type of immune cell known as an eosinophil. And these patients suffer from what's known as severe eosinophilic asthma. So their asthma is mediated by this type of immune cell. So this therapy effectively depletes these cells and um, it's shown huge efficacy in both clinical trials and uh, in common use. It's now licensed for use. So this is great. So this means that um, uh, based on maybe further study uh, or rollout that uh, those who suffer from a more severe type of asthma won't need to take as much of that steroid? Exactly, yes. So what prompted, this was a phase four clinical trial. So this trial was looking at a therapeutic that's already in use in the clinic. Which is um, great. Which is great. It's under the brand name Fresenra. Maybe people will know it as that. And what the authors were trying to show was that if you are taking Fresenra, you don't need to take such a high dose or even any dose at all of steroid. So they'd conducted the study over the course of a year and by the end of the year, 92% of patients on benralizumab uh, did not have to use their steroid inhaler unless they needed it just for relief as a reliever. That's amazing. Just, uh, you know, to say, as we always do on the programme, don't be taking medical decisions without speaking to a doctor. Exactly. Even though there are doctors in this studio, I mean, a, a medical doctor who looks after your health. Um, uh, thanks very much. Really interesting one, Leanne. Ruth, our second story uh, is a funny one. It has to do with computing and brain cells. 
It does. And, and I suppose computer scientists are naturally going to be interested in our, bra- in our brains because there's no computer that's as powerful as what we have uh, inside our skull in terms of the kind of computing power of our brain. Um, so, so this is new research that came out. It was published in Nature Communications where researchers in Indiana have essentially developed a computer that is a mixture of sort of traditional hardware and human brain tissue. So they've used something called a brain organoid, which is when you take brain stem cells and you try to grow them in a dish. And actually, rather than just behaving and layering on the bottom of the dish, they actually start to clump together into a little floating lump. Gross. And start to differentiate into the types of cells that you would see in a brain. So it's not a full human brain, but it does have some of the properties of a brain. And what they did with this little brain organoid was they they essentially had electrodes running into it and then a little sensor that could pick up the output from the neurons in this little brain organoid. So it looks like a little lump of tissue sort of floating on a circuit board in a Petri dish for want of a better explanation. But but what was amazing about this was they were actually able to use this as a computer. So they were able to actually train it on data sets that were input through the electrodes going in and then they could pick up traces coming out and actually almost use that a little bit like sort of a black box AI. So at the moment, you you kind of think some of these large neural network models that are used in AI, we put prompts into them and we get information out, but we're not really sure what happens in the middle layer. And this is kind of the same thing. So they actually trained this, uh, they called it BrainAwave, or BrainAware, sorry, they called it BrainAware. They trained it on on different language models. Could it recognise different people speaking? So they had, I think, six or eight Japanese men and they had hundreds of different sound samples from these people. And they trained the BrainAware computer on these sound files and then actually prompted to see once it was given a sound file without the extra information, could it identify the speaker? And it turns out that it could in 78% of cases. Wait, hang on. You're saying some of the... Some of the computing was done by actual brain cells. Some of the computing was done in the middle by this layer of actual brain tissue. So so the way it is, you kind of have, you know, a lot of AI systems rely on these interconnected nodes and the brain tissue here is performing that same function. Wow. And the thing that was interesting was it also got better as it was trained. Uh, so oh. that, that success rate went from 51% up to 78%. But also when they treated the brain tissue with drugs that essentially reduce synaptic plasticity, the performance of the computer went down. Like, that's incredible and shows uh, active participation by these cells in that system. It, it really does make me think of Henrietta Lacks, though, mm. the, the story of those uh, cells harvested from a black woman in America without a consent that now form the, the basis of so many sem, uh, st- cell lines uh, that are used in, in scientific research. And you wonder, those brain cells, where, you know, if we culture them and make computers out of them, where do they come from? I don't know, is there an ethical thing there? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I, mean, I think undoubtedly there is. And, and I think in the, in the commentary that was published alongside this, that issue was raised straight away. Was it, yeah. What are the ethical considerations about using this kind of human tissue as these little brain organoids start to differentiate? I mean, at the moment, there isn't any kind of consciousness or emotional um, sort of abilities. abilities just, yeah. But, you know, what if, dot, dot, dot. I mean, I think the other thing is a bit like the AI. This is kind of unexplained computation. It's just happening and we know it's happening. But but I guess, I mean, if you try to think about the advantages, I mean, certainly the power to run the human brain is only a fraction of what it costs to do sort of standard computing. So there could be much low energy usage for a computer that has this kind of neural right. built in. And obviously it's also interesting just to see, you know, what goes wrong when people can't learn and their memory. These kind of systems might help us to understand that too, but pretty incredible technological science. Amazing. 
Our third story, Leanne, is a really interesting one. It's not, not like a, a traditional story that we tend to do on the program, but I just loved um, that researchers were working in, in an interdisciplinary way uh, to look at the origins of skateboarding and why and how it happened in the only place it could at the only time it could. Exactly. So this story was a bit of a pivot. So if I were to say to you guys, California, what would be the words that you'd associate with that? Yeah, Done. Dude, Done. surfer, Dirt. bogus... There Whoa. Yeah, okay. Bill and Ted. I could keep <laughs> yeah. going. Exactly. No, so sun, surfer, you probably wouldn't hit upon as easily drought, polyurethane and kidney-shaped pools. But it was these set of circumstances that led to the explosion in professional skateboarding in California in the 1970s. And researchers now say that it was really only in this place at this time as a result of these factors that skateboarding could really kick off, as it were. So let's set the scene. It's 1950s America. So California has a vibrant surfing community so all along the Pacific coast. At the same time, the first colour magazines were coming out, so it began to disseminate the popularity of surfing around America and around the world. The polyurethane industry was really kicking off, so industrial production was really kicking up and becoming widespread. And as well as that, there was a massive uh, boost or growth um, in the American economy, leading to the construction of loads of different outdoor private and public schools. So it was estimated that around... Over 150,000 pools were constructed in California in the 1960s. And of these, a particular shape was popular. And this was the kidney-shaped pool. So this deviated from the normal vertical-sided pool to this kind of ramp-like, if you can see where this is going, um, structure. Yeah, the the perfect bowl for for skating in. Exactly, yeah. So California experiences a drought in the 1970s and it goes through a really arid, dry phase with peaking between 1976 and 1977, where it experienced the driest consecutive years on record. So obviously the government starts to bring in some measures to conserve water, and one of these involves um, banning the filling of outdoor swimming pools. So you have this vibrant surfing community going on, you have all these empty pools lying around in the perfect shape for a board that's just become really advanced due to this polyurethane production, which has given rise to wheels with better grip, better turning ability, um, and better bearings. So... The surfers and the freestyle skaters really began playing around in these playgrounds with these new materials. And they started to develop different styles of skateboarding. And one of these is the vert. So if you're asked to kind of imagine a skateboarder, this is probably the stereotypical example. It's that U-shaped ramp. The skateboarder inches by inch by inch towards the edge. The wheels crest the side and they zip down on this vertical slope, curve at the bottom and come back up. And suddenly they're in the air and they're doing all these twists and flips and tricks and things that if we tried to do, we'd probably end up giving ourselves a concussion at best. (laughs) So this really kicks off around this time. Um, Skateboarder magazine begins to promote this style and an issue called getting vertical and suddenly we see this taking off around the world due to this combination of factors. So the media influence starts to become huge as in relation to skateboarding. We see movies like Bones Brigade come out in the 1980s and suddenly we have global media stars like Tony Hawk, Danny Way, uh, Tony Magnuson. And, so, and so like the, the researchers were basically looking at the cultural effects, the econ- economic effects and of course the technological advances that were happening at the time and that they all sort of crisscrossed in California in 1977 and Tony Hawk and his generation were suddenly born. Yeah, exactly. So there would be no Tony Hawk. Maybe Bart Simpson wouldn't have been skating around our screens for that whole decade. Maybe I wouldn't have worn a t-shirt saying skate girl at the age of nine into my Sligo primary school (laughs) if this all hadn't happened. So (laughs) it really highlighted the need to examine the fact that even small environmental changes can really influence human behaviour. Amazing. Um, Ruth, our final story has to do with Christmas parties uh, and why not if for the month that's the in The month it. that's in it and for anyone who's out there who's having a bit of a crisis feeling a bit overwhelmed and maybe they've received a couple of invitations and they just don't want to go it's fine 
you don't have to. <laughs> so the science tells us this week. Um, so this is new research that came out in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And they designed a whole series of experiments to try and examine how we feel when we get, I suppose, someone declines to come along to event an event that we're organising and how we feel when we don't go. So they had n- nearly 2,000 participants and they had a whole range of different studies. And in the first one, they got nearly 400 online participants and they split them into two groups. And one group um, had to sort of read and imagine themselves in, in a scenario where they were getting a hypothetical invitation from a friend to come along to a nice dinner in a restaurant with a celebrity chef. And they had to decline that event Uh, and then the other group had to look at those and and they had to rate how they felt about these things and what happened was the people who were rejecting the invitation really emphasised how negative the impact of them rejecting that invitation would be whereas in fact the people who were rejected didn't really mind. They didn't really care. Not that they, they didn't care, but certainly they didn't care half as much as the people who were rejecting the invitation. And when they went on, they actually then got real life couples to come on board and do part of the experiment. And again, they set up scenarios where one part of the couple had set up a nice evening out and the other person just had to say, you know what, I just don't want to go. Uh, and again, they rated how that made them feel. Again, the person who was saying, I'd rather not go, really overemphasised the negative impact that they were going to have on the person who they, whose invitation they were rejecting. This is probably unsurprising that we think we have a much bigger Im- impact on other people's um, minds uh, than others. When actually, when we think about it, all, all, all we often think about is ourselves, and so it's it's all anyone else is thinking about. And so, as long as you're not taking, you know, as long as it's not a, a dinner for two, and you're and you're 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 canceling last minute. If it's a dinner for four or five, although I do know someone who cancels last minute a lot. And it does. It does. It's that maybe the outlier of that. But, story. but the other thing I can't say who it is. The other thing. But if you're listening and you know my group, you know who it is. But the the other thing that was interesting was when they did different scenarios. When someone had had an invitation rejected themselves, they tended to be more forgiving. Then you know they they were more likely to not feel so bad about declining another invitation. Right. That's the other side. And what seventy five percent of people that they studies go to things they don't want to go to. Yeah. So over the course of the next week three quarters of the people listening to this will be going to things that they don't really want to go to. And Mm. the answer is, sometimes you need to look after yourself and maybe just say no. Yeah, look after yourself. Uh, Well, uh, Dr. Ruth Freeman and Leanne Shanley, um, thanks very much for joining us. Now, if you've ever tried experimenting with VR, you'll know it can trick your brain into thinking that what you're seeing is absolute reality in front of your eyes. But in the United States, they're taking this technology to a whole new level, a minuscule one. Scientists have created mini VR goggles for mice. Why? Well, Professor Daniel Dombeck, who's from the Department of Neurobiology at Northwestern University, joins us, of course, to explain. Welcome to the program, uh, Daniel. Um, Let's just dive straight into this because it's such a fascinating uh, study that you've done. Tell me what it is that you are looking to understand and how you went about it, please. Sure. Thanks for having me. So my lab studies memory formation. Um, So we study this uh, in lab animals to start with. And so we, we use lab mice. And we've developed uh, these really fancy microscopes to image into their brains to try to find the neurons and the synapses that are uh, that are forming memories as animals are running around. And one of the complications that we have is that we can't, uh, you know, the mice can't run around and learn to, r- to run a maze and carry these microscopes around with them. They're just too big and complicated, big lasers and things. And so instead, what we decided to do is hold the animal still, hold its head still under the microscope. 
Um, that's kind of boring. They can't actually move around very much. And so we put a treadmill under them so they can run. And then what we decided to do is build these virtual reality goggles that we could put on the mice. And that would make it so that they, as they run on the treadmill, what they see is movement through this virtual world that they're immersed in, right? And so then we can use these really fancy microscopes, image into the brain, try to understand how memories are formed, how animals are thinking while they're actually performing, uh, you know, sort of real life, uh, real world tasks like running through a maze. And so that's the, that, that's the, the idea behind it. Okay, let's start with how. How on earth did you make mini VR goggles for mice? I mean, their their eyes are placed in a different part of the head and they have different vision to humans, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So the, the mouse eye is quite different from our eye. So just a single one of their eyes has a very large field of view. Um, and when you put the two eyes together on the mouse, they're sort of on the side of their head. Uh, they see uh, they see behind their body, they see over their head. It's a very large field of view. And so it's very different from making virtual reality goggles for humans. You know, if you've put on Oculus Rift goggles, for example, that field of view, it fills all of our field of view, but it wouldn't be nearly enough for a mouse. And hmm. so we really had to go back. My team went back to, well, you know, first principles. We made a, a model of the mouse eye in um, optic software, and then we started designing uh, lenses and screen systems around that eye so that we could fill the whole field of view. And what my team came up with is basically like a little contact lens that fits over each, you know, one over each of the eyes and that envelops the eye. And then we made these, or we use these very small, uh, screens, high resolution screens. It's basically like what's in your Apple watch. Um, and if they're placed at the right distance and they're curved in the right way near these, uh, these lenses that fills the field of view of the mouse with whatever we decide to project onto those screens. Um, and so that fills their full field of view. And then one of the important aspects of the system is that because we're projecting a different view to each eye, we can actually give the animal a stereo vision. And so that's how the animal can see depth, see 3D. So right, it's sort of the di difference between, uh, you know, if you're watching TV, it's a flat screen in front of you, you can see the, the living room around you and you don't have 3D information, but you put on Oculus Rift goggles all of your field of view is taken up and you see depth information. And so that's what we were trying to reproduce for the mice with these tiny goggles. Um, but it just, you know, it was actually a much bigger technical um, optics challenge to make it for mice um, and make it miniature at the same time. Okay, so so that's a very impressive technical feat in and of itself. But then you also had to create um, a miniature trackpad for them to move around on. What was the thinking there? What, why do you need a trackpad? So, well, so if, we are, if we're holding their head in place, we, they're basically like wearing a little helmet um, to hold their head under this microscope. Uh, you know, we, we wanted something for them to move on. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of different systems that have been used in neuroscience. So either, you know, think of like a, a cylinder that they're running on, a, a styrofoam cylinder that they run on to, you know, one-dimensional treadmill, we call it. Or we've also used a floating ball, um, basically a eight inch diameter styrofoam ball that with a air jet underneath it. So it's sort of floating there and it's floating just at the right location for the animal's paws to rest on it. And then they can run and rest um, on the treadmill. So wow, it, it's not like a driven treadmill. It's not like when we get on the treadmill at the gym and it's forcing us to run. These are ones that are very light and very easy for the animal to move. And so as they turn this thing underneath them, it's basically the same force that they're applying to rotate that thing as they would be moving themselves forward if they're running in the real world. And so it feels, we think it feels to them quite naturalistic that they're 
you know, moving and applying the same kind of forces as if they were running in the real world. Okay, so the, 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 the floating ball is connected to sensors and those sensors inform the 3D world what to show so the, the mouse's brain is tricked into thinking it's running through a hole when it's actually just sort of um, doing rotations on, on a ball. Exactly right. But um, what happens when you give mazes to these? I, I presume that's what you do. You give what, what sort of environments do you create for them and, and do they navigate them in the way you would expect uh, them to navigate a, an actual 3D space? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, so, so the mazes, uh, you know, to start with have been fairly simple. They're really just long hallways, as you described. And then uh, typically what we'll do is at some certain location along the hallway, we'll hide a reward. And their job is to, you know, use the cues around them and run a certain distance and then find this reward. If they lick at the right spot, then they get this, this reward. And so they're sort of navigating to find a hidden reward. How do yeah. you reward them though? If they're, if they're, do you, do you have to, when they, when they go to lick, do you have to then give them a, a drop of sugar? Yeah, so absolutely. Mice love to run. Um, and so running itself is actually a reward for the animals, but they like sugar water, they like sweet water. So we can give that as a reward. Um, and after, after they're running on the treadmill for quite a while, they can get thirsty. And then just giving them a, a water reward is, is uh, valuable to them as well, right? Animals are always in the wild foraging around for food and water. And so whenever it's available, they'll work for it. And that actually is a, is a rewarding thing for them. Yeah. So just to, to paint a picture, uh, you have a mouse uh, with the head in a little helmet that sees a 3D picture. It's roaming around a virtual re reality environment and you're monitoring on the screen what it sees. And when it finds a reward, you then give it the reward and thus train it how to explore and be successful in a virtual reality environment. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> and, and we can do that either with a long hallway, we can do what we call a tea maze where the animal runs down the middle and then we give it a cue that, that tells it which way it's supposed to turn at the end to get the reward. Um, and we could build up to more complicated mazes as well. But you know, you were asking, how similar is this navigation behavior to real environments? And it turns out that it's actually quite similar. Um, it takes a little bit longer, um, typically, to train the animals and to, to pay attention to the virtual worlds mm. um, and to engage in these virtual reality tasks um, compared to real-world environments. And that's actually one of the reasons we came up with this goggle system. So researchers had actually been using um, virtual reality technology for rodents and these in these you know head restrained rodents for years to, you know 15 20 years or so just with these you know with a flat screen monitor or maybe like a curved monitor around them um but they had the same problem as i was describing of us watching tv where you can see the the non-lab frame you know you can see the lab frame the the non-virtual yeah. reality frame around the animals not 3d information and in those systems it actually took the animals quite a while to engage in the tasks and to learn to navigate compared to real environments. And so that that was one of the motivations to come up with this goggle system that was more immersive and had 3D information. And what we actually found is that the animals actually did engage quite a bit more quickly in these virtual tasks. Um, they were able to find the rewards faster, for example, with the goggle system compared to the older, um, you know, 2D uh, VR systems. And so that was actually quite exciting, right? One of the first times we had the prototype built and we put it on the animal, animal was sitting there, you know, we just had the dark screens and then we suddenly turned on the virtual world. You could sort of see the animal kind of sit up and pay attention and jump a little bit and then started running around and exploring 
um, as an animal would in a new environment. So that was, uh, you know, it was an exciting early moment, but um, that's, you know, that, that, that was the motivation and it ended up working out perfectly well. Uh, what about um, threats and um, uh, potential mates? Have, have you done that in, in this environment? Have you put potential mates in, in the virtual reality world and see how they react? Have you put threats like, I don't know, what, what hunts birds um, that hunt, hunt mice or whatever? Yeah. Snakes? Yeah. Yeah. So we haven't done, uh, we haven't done mates. We haven't done conspecifics of, you know, uh, that sort of social interaction yet. Um, that's, you know, that's something we've talked about. Uh, we have done, we've, we've worked a bit on threats. Uh, so as I was saying earlier, you know, mice have this very large field of view and they see um, over their head and they actually, um, as they're moving around, they adjust their eyes to make sure that both eyes are almost always looking over their head. And that's because, you know, if you're a little creature, um, you're often worried that things are going to be eating you from above, right? Yeah, that that yeah. an owl's going to swoop in or a hawk or something. And so you're always monitoring. And um, in the wild and in and, and, and real world lab experiments, um, there's a, what we call a looming paradigm, where if you have something kind of uh, increasing in size quickly above the animal's head, these animals will either freeze in place immediately or they'll flee to the nearest uh, you know, shelter uh, and try to get away. And so in the virtual world, because this is the first time we've been able to stimulate uh, that overhead region in virtual reality. And so we wanted to test whether we could reproduce that same sort of, uh, that, that same sort of survival instinct um, that the animals had. So we had this, as the animals were running down this track, a couple of times we had a looming stimulus, just an increasing size disc over the animal's head. And sure enough, every animal that we applied this to either froze immediately in place or fled to a tunnel that we had at the end of the track um, and, and, you know, it hid in the tunnel. And so it was very similar uh, to the real world responses. The animals either fro froze or fled and then froze again. And that freezing lasted for minutes. Um, and that's very similar to the real world as well. They'll, they'll just sit, sit there. They don't move a whisker and wait for you know the perceived threat to be to be gone and so that you know that really demonstrates some level of immersion in these systems right we can't ask the animal you know the animals aren't going to tell us um, what they're feeling but we can look at these behavioral responses and get an idea of how immersed um, they actually are and that's that's yeah. you know one that gives us a good idea daniel you realize how ludicrous this research yeah. sounds to someone outside of the world of science, right? So let's focus a little bit on the why. Why would you train a mouse to think it was in a virtual reality world and explore it on a fake trackball? What, what, what is the benefit for this? Yeah, yeah, that's it's an important point. I think, you know, at face value, it sounds a bit crazy. And I we all we understand that um, it's not just for the fun of, you know, building mini goggles for mice, right? This is, this is really, um, you know, important, serious science that we're trying to do. And, and this is all motivated by our questions about uh, memory formation, for example. We think there's other applications as well. But, you know, this is, so um, let me give you an example. There's, there's cells called place cells in your head. Yeah. Um, and so as you walk around and, you know, in your living room, um, there's different cells that fire depending on what location you are in your living room. And those neurons basically form a map of the world inside your head. And that part of the brain that has that map, um, that, that's where memories are formed as well. So it's, you know, if you closed your eyes and thought about uh, walking around in your living room, it's the same neurons that were active as you walked around that are reactivated um, as you have that mental, uh, you know, uh, 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 navigation experience. And 
So those cells are helping you to form memories of those environments and to help you navigate around. And it turns out that that's the part of the brain that's first affected or one of the first regions affected in Alzheimer's disease, right? And so that level of understanding of, you know, how a pathology leads to, you know, loss of memories of places and experiences and that cellular level understanding of how the single neurons are representing locations and what their firing patterns are, almost all of that came from rodent research like what we're doing, right? So that, you know, that sort of recording, recording single neurons, having animals run around in mazes, it eventually leads to understanding of diseases that, that humans have, like Alzheimer's, you know, other neurodegeneration uh, type diseases. And so, you know, what we're trying to do in our experiments specifically now with that understanding is we're trying to figure out in those, those place cells, as animals are running around in a maze for the very first time, we're watching individual place cells form their firing locations. How do they decide where to fire? Which synapses are modified? And what specific biochemical pathways are activated at individual synapses in the behaving animal to form that memory, right? And so that's we're, we're trying to get down to those uh, sort of level experiments that people used to do in culture dishes um, and, you know, uh, you know, very reduced preparations. And we're trying to figure out if those mechanisms and which of those mechanisms are activated in the brains of these animals in the neurons that are actually forming the memories, right? And that eventually trickles down to you know, human health and disease and understanding of our diseases and hopefully cures and treatments down the road. So it's, it's, there's a long way, you know, don't get me wrong between, between mouse virtual reality goggles and cures for diseases, but this is where those initial discoveries are made that eventually, you know, trickle down. No, and, and being able to understand in such a controlled environment how those play cells form um, memories and how they how how uh, emotions are, are are formed at those memories is really interesting. When I first heard about play cells, the idea that there was a single cell that held the a record of a place that you were been you, you've been and that 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 is for every location you've ever been absolutely blew my mind yeah. what about what about the emotional side though do, do we see fear when that um sort of ufo simulated ufo you created in the vr do we see fear attaching itself to a cell or do we not really understand that just yet so so it turns out that that nobody had ever recorded from these play cells in one of those looming paradigms for example and we were actually um, able to do that with this, these virtual reality goggles to answer, you know, a question exactly like what you're getting at, whether a uh, fear response at a particular location alters the, the, these place cells in some way, how those cells are altered and, and how the memories are, are changed. And so what we what we actually found um, was that so, so as the animals are running down this track, we can actually use these place cells to determine where the animal is. We don't even have to look at the, the animal's location in the environment. We can just look at the firing patterns of these neurons and we can do what's called decoding. We can decode the animal's position just based on the firing patterns of these neurons. And so we, uh, we looked at this decoding as the animals are running down the track and then we applied that looming stimulus and the animals would freeze. And we could look during that freezing time when they weren't actually moving at what location the animal was thinking about with these play cells, with this decoding. And wow. what we found was that in, you know, in one example, for example, uh, you know, in one case, the animal froze in the middle of the track, right where the loom had occurred, but the neurons that were active in the animal's brain were decoding the location of the 
um, of the shelter, the tunnel up ahead. And so the animal no. was in the middle of the track, but he was thinking, the animal was thinking about a location of safety up ahead, right? And so it's hard to, you know, this is early days in these experiments, but it suggests that the animal is actually thinking about safety, thinking about where it would rather be than where it actually was. And in another case, the animal fled to the tunnel and it froze there. And the decoded location was the location of the loom in the middle of the huh. track, as if it was recalling and thinking about the experience that it just had, right? And so that gives us some idea of how animals, you know, in one case might be thinking and planning of what what would I like to do or what should I have done, you know, next time if this happens, I should run to that, that shelter instead. Or in the other case, the animal might be thinking about that experience and consolidating that memory, like, okay, that was a really important location where that happened. I should avoid that in the future. Um, and so we think that that's, you know, how these cells are, are um, you know, are encoding those sort of fear memories. This is absolutely fascinating work and amazing uh, to be able to have that sort of picture of what is going on in a mouse's brain. You would imagine that's the sort of stuff that is happening, but to be able to record it and see that um, is extraordinary. Really, really great speaking with you, uh, Professor Daniel Dombeck from the Department of Neurobiology at Northwestern. Thanks for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely crazy, uh, that, isn't it? And I'd love to get your thoughts on it. You can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. Uh, all right, very quickly, some comments from last week. We were talking about um, functional foods, and someone says, what would the difference between functional food and superfood be? Superfoods tend to be dense in nutrients and... Um, uh, vitamins and, and minerals and so on and functional foods actually improve functions like your cognition or or your immune system and so on so they, they may contain other things like proteins and um probiotics and prebiotics and that sort of stuff um hypoxia someone says i've heard we were talking about uh hypoxia and how uh, you can actually get someone fit for serious surgery by actually reducing the amount of oxygen they get before they uh, undergo surgery. And someone said, I've heard that kind of training can be really beneficial for swimmers too. Is that the case? Yeah, look, if you're burning calories as part of um, uh, your activity, hypoxia is going to be good for you because it gives it gives you more oxygen. You can burn more fuel. You can uh, move quicker, expend more energy at a shorter, uh, at a quicker rate. So absolutely, it's a uh, it's benefit for, uh, for anyone. And someone says, how noticeable is the reduced oxygen in these cir circumstances? It's not that noticeable by the sounds of it. Um, and yet it does seem to have great ben benefits. People aren't wheezing in the room or anything. Uh, that's it from us. Thanks to uh, Marisa Solomon, John Fardy, who gave us a bit of extra time in the studio this week. We won't forget that. Our our old great producer. And uh, of course, to Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on News Talk.